From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. So I have to start with a confession. I wrote a couple of recent podcast introductions using the artificial intelligence program called ChatGPT. So I I asked the chatbot to look up information about a couple of these guests and put that information into introduction form. Now, I, I did end up tweaking both of these introductions, but I have to admit that chat GPT was really helpful in this work and saved me a lot of time. In general, I'm a fairly early adopter of technology and I've been using chat GPT a good amount. I've realized that I don't really stop to reflect on my use of technology and how it might be affecting my life or our society as a whole. Like what is it doing to my brain and my soul that I reach for my iPhone all the time, mindlessly, during, say, conversations with my wife? What do I say on social media that I wouldn't say in real life? And how does my behavior online make the world better, or much more likely, make the world worse? I recently discovered an incredible thinker and writer who has devoted his career to asking big questions of our technology and what it's doing to our communal life and our individual lives. His name is Michael Sacassis, though he writes under the name L.M. Sacassis. Michael has this great Substack newsletter called The Convivial Society that is my absolute favorite thing to read these days. He has this incredible ability to read and absorb scholars from the past like Marshall McLuhan, Neil Postman, Hannah Arendt, and the Jesuit literary scholar Walter Ong, and he applies their arguments to our very different media environment today. I asked Michael about his thoughts on these AI chatbots like ChatGPT and Microsoft's new Bing and Google Bard. We also talked about social media and smartphones and artificial light and time and clocks and what countercultural roles faith communities might be able to play in offering venues for incarnational, authentic community. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Well, Michael Sacassis, welcome to AMDG. Thank you so much for taking the time. How are you? I am doing well. It is my pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. No, I, I was saying to you right before we started recording that I've discovered your uh, your newsletter, The Convivial Society, just relatively recently, but I've been going through those posts and reading other things you've written and just really found your stuff so thought-provoking, I thought, this is someone we have to, to have on the show. Uh, so I appreciate your you're making time uh, to do that. And a few topics I wanted to talk with you about. Uh, and in, in your work about you know, technology and how it has impacts on people and communities, maybe in ways we hadn't planned, um, we could get and go through so many of those different technologies. And I wanted to talk about a few of them today. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think we could start maybe by talking about chatbots. There's been a lot in the news about chatbots recently. Chat GPT, the new Bing, Google Bard. I just got off the wait list for Google Bard today. Oh, and I mean, I've been using the, the Bing one for my work a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. And so you've written a bit about this and been thinking, I'm sure, and taking this in. But this is only in the past few months, I feel like, and maybe not even that long, has this become a such a kind of a central topic in how we think about technology, using technology, and what it might be doing to us. So just for you, as someone who's been writing on those themes for a long time, what have been some of your like, kind of first reactions to like the rise and this widespread availability of, of these technologies? 
That is a great question. And uh, I feel a, a measure of, of trepidation because things seem to be moving so quickly. Um, and and it is, it's true. I mean, I think it's been basically since early December. I think it was uh, ChatGPT was released in late November. I think by mid-December, uh, lots and lots of people have had signed up to use it. Um, and I think since then, it's, it's kind of dominated um, tech discussions or the tech discourse. Uh, and then I think that we had the update to um, chat GP, or GPT-4 um, even more recently than that, uh, which was a significant upgrade. And, and so there's been a great deal of discussion. Uh, I'm, I'm finding it hard to crystallize my thinking because things are moving so quickly. Um, mm. I have, you know, there are, there are all sorts of layers of concerns that people express um, from cataclysmic outcomes, the fear of uh, super intelligent being emerging and uh, leading to the end of humanity. Uh, and from there on down to uh, more conventional uh, concerns that we have become rather accustomed to in our media environment, such as the proliferation of uh, misinformation uh, and so and everything in between. Um, so I have thought uh, some of my thinking initially, especially when Bing um, was paired with the chat GPT um, capability, and we saw a lot of examples of strikingly deranged exchanges and conversations and some um, articles uh, published uh, in the New York Times, I think one by a tech journalist named Kevin Roos in particular, which was basically just a transcript of a kind of two hour conversation with with um, with Bing uh, or Sydney, uh, its its internal code name, uh, which it divulged uh, much to Microsoft's chagrin. Uh, in any case, the, um, the 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 focus for me initially, and what I have written about it thus far, has been thinking about how these chat agents. Well, two two possibilities. So they are chat agents. Right? The underlying technology, um, GPT, the large language model had been around for a couple of years. The, the first instantiation of it, I think, uh, came out in 2017. Um, uh, the third version of it, of which ChatGPT is kind of paired with 3.5 uh, version of it, it's been around for, for some time, but it's when that chat functionality um, came into play that I think many people began to gravitate to it and play around with it. And it, it's in that replicating of a human interaction that I think a lot of my thinking has has revolved uh, around that possibility and how alluring it might be. There's an you know uh, a, the the er example of this right the foundational example of this uh, is the first chatbot created by uh, Joseph Weizenbaum in the 1960s called Eliza, and he was immediately struck by uh, how people immediately. Uh, fell into having natural conversations with it. Now, it was very primitive. It basically just kind of rephrased your questions back to you. It was modeled on a, a particular version of, um, of therapy in which uh, you're just led to kind of interrogate your own, your own thoughts. But even at that very primitive level, uh, people were developing uh, what we might think of as sort of parasocial relationships with it. This became known as the Eliza effect, that we want to attribute a kind of personhood or agency um, even to, to things we know are not sentient um, or, um, uh, or or have any form of personhood. And so here we have a, an extremely sophisticated version of that very same dynamic. 
And so one of the uh, one of the societal ills that has preoccupied me recently is kind of the, the 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 plague of loneliness and isolation. And so to you know w- one way of thinking about this is that you know we we in certain circumstances have a temptation as a society to apply a technological solution where really only a kind of human interaction will ultimately heal or solve the problem we're trying to address. I I think as one example of this, um, Japan and possibly now Italy's attempt to solve their crisis in elder care by deploying robots and other forms of machine intelligence to provide uh, comfort and support and companionship. Um, And so uh, a large language model can imitate uh, a human conversation relatively well. Uh, there, there's the possibility that if it is trained on uh, the the voice patterns and data of people you know, it can be led to imitate uh, close relations. Um, you know, possibly even the deceased. Uh, so there, there are interesting ways in which these chatbots will interact with the human condition, on our need for fellowship, for companionship, for friendship. Uh, but in ways that I think might lead us from pursuing deeper, more human and satisfying solutions to those kinds of, of problems. Um, and then relatedly, uh, when I wrote most recently about this, uh, I, I was especially concerned about those in a vulnerable psychological state um, when, and not even necessarily imagining extreme versions of what that might mean. But if, if someone is in a depressive state, uh, maybe experiencing thoughts of self-harm. The the language model generated, at least in that early phase, responses that, to my mind, could very easily tip people or, or send them into downward spirals uh, in, in terms of their mental health and how they were thinking about their own lives uh, or their own self-worth uh, that seemed to me... Uh, not not trivial it dangerous in in a not simply trivial way um so those are some of the the ways that i've been thinking about how these large language models and their especially their chat functionality uh, kind of interact with the human life world there are, there are countless other applications and ways to think about this but th- those are some of my um immediate thoughts sure so i've been playing around with, with these things you know like for work uh, mm-hmm. Here, in which we'll like cover certain feast days of different Jesuits, say, or like uh, part of our, our thing, and so like using one of these to help like kind of unearth to find like as a supercharged kind of so, uh, search engine, right? Can, mm-hmm. can you not only find these things, but like find a few from different sources and pick ones yeah. that are different and interesting and put them in a list for me, and and then we can use that as the yeah. basis of something. And and even like with my my wife was trying to plan one of our daughter's Girl Scout meetings. I was like, look, give me like kind of your time frame and like sort of some of the themes. And she didn't have much time to plan it, and so I typed it in, and we got like some good activities that they unearthed mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. from that. And I thinking like especially in this Jesuit context, like in Ignatian spirituality. I don't know if you're familiar with like some of the work of Saint Ignatius, but like from the very beginning of his exercise, the, the beginning is this principle and foundation, right? This sense that like humans are created to like to praise, reverence God, love God, love neighbor, and then the things of the created world are you know are meant toward that end and are also gifts mm-hmm. from God. And so if we use those things toward that end, then that that's good. That's the way they should be used. But if we use them 
in other ways, then that's not how they should be used. But the, so we should be able to leave them behind to have like a loose grip on these things, including these technologies to, to not use that way. But thinking, oh, maybe it's possible to use these tools in a, a way that they were meant to be used and can make life better. And I know you've written about even thinking about like a hammer, right, as a tool, and you can use different tools in, in different ways. But can't there, couldn't there be good usage of these things and these tools to, yeah, to, to help people or to, to help make our, our work better, our communities yeah. better? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, I, I think that's certainly undoubtedly the case. Um, and and, and I, I should note there there may be um, some who say, well, uh, if you know if the alternative is uh, no companionship or robot companionship uh, for the elderly, right? Uh, which would you prefer? Uh, and I, you know, I think you know my my point is that we should continue to strive for the fullness of human relationship and presence. But um, I, I think there the one way to think about the scenario you laid out is that uh, well, well, I'll do this. Uh, through the thinking of Ivan Illich, who uh, has been one of the more influential um, social critics that has informed my own thinking about technology. So he, he, really, he wrote a book called Tools for Conviviality. He thought about tools as both um, institutions and technologies, uh, but he, he came to this realization later that he was already, and this was in the early 1970s, uh, and a lot of the thinking that led to it was developed through the 60s. Um, but he came to the realization later that he had he had missed some a, a really critical development in technological society, and which is he he put it this way that we had moved from the age of instruments to the age of systems. And so I, I think what he meant by that, what he was trying to get at, is that you can imagine this relationship of mastery with regards to a tool or an instrument, and you. And you can't quite achieve that same relation of mastery with a system, right? So if you take a hammer, you know, it's very easy to imagine a skilled craftsman becoming very adept at the use of a hammer, a carpenter, say, um, any tool you held in hand that you cultivate a skill around its use, um, particularly with craft work, say, but with any tool, you, you can you can become the master of that tool, right? You can You can guide its use, its implementation. But when you when you start talking about systems, and you have uh, you have effects that are localized, but then also effects that are distributed throughout the system, and it becomes very difficult for any one person to to master a system. In fact, perhaps impossible uh, to master a system in the same way that a person can enter into a relationship of mastery with a tool or an instrument. Uh, part part of this for for uh, Illich was that the, the system. Uh, enclosed you, right? It incorporated you uh, into itself, and so you you simply could not stand apart from it and and direct its use and predict all of the consequences of how you put the the tool or the instrument to use, etc. And so I think we we have to think that way, right? So um, there may be any number of benign and uh, beneficent uses to which you or I may put certain technologies, but if those technologies, but specifically if we're thinking of, of um, sort of globe-spanning platforms, say, right? So social media is an example that preoccupied us for uh, you know a few years prior to the emergence of, of AI as the new thing to be talked about. Um, I might use you know Facebook in a very uh, what I would maybe think is a, you know a, a kind of um, illicit and benign way. 
But that doesn't account for the fact that the system as a whole has effects that are independent of my particular uses of it, right? Um, so it, it's just complicated. I think this is where, where I end up, right? Y yes, we can imagine good uses, but then there are all sorts of second order effects that arise from the systemic nature of, of, of our cybernetic tools, um, for lack of a better word, that are difficult to predict and control. Uh, and so that it just, it isn't enough for us to simply say, well, I will put tool X to good use. Um, I think we need to think a little bit more deeply about that. And, and I, I would suggest too that, you know, use is one thing, but we're always being formed by the, by the use to which we put our tools, right? So um, even in putting tools to good benign uses, uh, there have been, there, there are ways in which we are shaped and formed um, by the medium of communication, say, right? So I may always put, um, you know, letter writing or uh, phone calls to good use or text messages to good use. Uh, but but that mode of communication, what it the, what it affords us in terms of what can be expressed through it, uh, how it shapes our our perception, uh, how it how it reflects the self back to ourselves. There are all these subtle ways in which it will shape us, not necessarily in bad ways, but it will shape us, um, and and possibly in ways that run counter to our expressed moral preferences, um, that might inculcate habits in us that. Um, are not conducive to the sorts of virtues that we want to cultivate in our own life. Uh, and that would be independent of the specific uses to which we are, are putting it, right? So um, all of this is to say, it requires a great deal of wisdom, I think, to think carefully about not just the action I am taking with this tool, but the larger ramifications of, this, of the system itself, and then these more subtle ways in which we are shaped regardless of the moral end to which we put the tool. I know you, one of your more popular pieces that has made its way around the internet, you kind of 41 questions for any mm -hmm. technology we might use, yeah. which to me as a Jesuit form person, uh, thinking about, you know, tools of discernment, also the, like the examination of conscience, yeah. uh, before confession, or even at the end of one's day in the, the daily exam and prayer practice, mm -hmm. kind of asking those questions, yeah. reviewing kind of intentionally your use of those things. And I know like, even for you personally, right? I, I've seen you on Twitter, so I know that's a, a platform you're, you're on, but I, mm -hmm. I've read somewhere else that you don't, or heard that you don't have a smartphone. I don't know if that's still true. Um, uh, that was true until three months ago. Okay, so uh, just yeah. a recent convert. But yeah. so yeah. that was a case in which you were making some of those discernments. And I don't know mm -hmm. if you could bring us like, into the, as you're saying, it's complex and there's not just necessarily that even if we're making good choices in some of these places, like being in, on Twitter a lot can like can shape yeah. us and make us think of this is how the world is or how we interact with others. Um, we'll get, get to that a little bit later too in more yeah. depth. Um, but just curious for you, like in, in that own, in that discernment, what are some of those questions that for you are, are important ones? Yeah, you know, for the, the, the case of the smartphone was an interesting one for me. I, I ended up with a smartphone because my old flip phone broke uh, and I, I could not readily replace it uh, for the first time. You know, so when this has happened in the past, I've been able to go to the store with whatever carrier I have and, and get a replacement. I wasn't able to do that. Um, and so um, part of it uh, was, and I always want to make clear, this, is, this was not a, uh, 
a, re a refusal in self-righteousness, right? It, it was actually rather um, a refusal grounded in, I think, a, a kind of uh, humility about my own willpower. Uh, and mm. so the, the, you know, the, the, the ability to have, um, to be on 24-7, as it were, right, to be, to be connected perpetually, which is, I think, the, the great affordance of the smartphone is to uh, kind of allow internet access perpetually to us. Uh, I just didn't trust myself. I didn't think that was... Um, necessarily wise and and even with the use of, uh, of of Twitter as another example right I call it a kind of devil's bargain my participation uh, in it and I'm and I'm, I'm very aware of the ways in which uh, it can inculcate um, unfortunate habits of thought um, kind of counter counteract my desire to be, be formed in, in terms of having more patience um, to, uh, to uh, the, the way in which for example it, it may subtly tempt me right to to speak or address certain things or, or to you know raise certain kinds of questions just because you, you get a sense for what works on the platform and what doesn't um so in any case you know i i try to be aware i don't think i'm immune to any of the tendencies or temptations um that i write about i think i write about them because i feel them uh and i feel myself certainly uh, lured in the same ways, tempted in the same ways. All these are, of course, are, are negative ways. You know, they're they're great opportunities of technology. One always feels to you know the need to perform the yes or a positive uses sort of thing. Um, but of course, everybody knows those. I think, um, and I think it's important to think more more carefully and circumspectly about what might be some of the unintended consequences. But in any case, um, to be to and, and also I would say this to it is not simply about limiting technology. I think this is a way sometimes some of this can come across, right? That you're just looking for ways to limit technology in some arbitrary fashion. Like just, you, you get the sense, some people get the sense, technology is bad, I just want, I don't want it in my life. But I don't think that's a helpful way to think about it at all. Mm. Um, I think the problem, part of the problem for us in, with regards to technology is we, we begin to think of it as an end in itself when it is always properly a means towards something. And so the question I want to encourage people to ask, and, and what I, which I try to foreground in my own thinking, is not how can I use this tool less. That that's not a, a, a properly formed question necessarily. It's rather what is the good that I am pursuing, and if I think about how this particular technology interacts with my pursuit of that good, whether that good is something like the cultivation of particular virtues in myself. Um, or the formation of certain kind of family life or community life, um, how it you know sort of shapes um, my relationship to the natural environment, etc. So, so there are these goods that I want to foreground, and then simply ask of the tool: Is it um, is it conducive to my pursuit of these goods, or does it interfere with it? So it's not that I'm against technology; it's that I'm for something, and I'm trying to think. Mm wisely about how the tool may be conducive to the achievement of that end or may actually be uh, overtly or inadvertently uh, undermining my pursuit. Does that make sense? Sure. And even yeah. kind of when thinking about reframing that, like what you're for and then how these tools and then also systems can are, are used in that way or can get in the, the way of that. And I think reflecting on um, AI again in one of your, your essays, on AI talked about again this the lack of intention from some of these chatbots, yeah. um, and then its ability to you know, just quoting from you now uh, capacity to manipulate human language makes them a potential threat to human society and human well being. 
especially where we have widespread loneliness, isolation, anxiety, and polarization. Mm -hmm. And then one, you kind of leave your kind of one piece of thinking about um, where our hope might lie. And you say, the cultivation of friendship and community through the practice of hospitality. And you quote Illich mm -hmm. again uh, mm -hmm. on, on hospitality. Uh, and for me, again, as someone in the, the church world, I think about is are there places that ways in which our faith communities can kind of cultivate some of those things in a, in a countercultural way? And, and so I'm just curious for you, you know, in terms of this, like how do you, why do you think hospitality is such a, an important value? And then are there, are there ways you think our, our faith communities can, can kind of double down on their commitment to that? Yeah, um, I think faith communities are are uniquely situated maybe not uniquely right but they, but they are they are they're situated uh, in a way that can prove very helpful because of a, of a certain dynamic here so w here's what I have in mind so if we imagine um, the question of agency right how much agency do I have uh, to make certain choices with regards to technology so for example for many years uh, I just didn't have a smartphone and I was able to do that in part because no employer required it of me Right, but that is not the case uh, for many other people. Right, other their agency uh, would have been constrained because of the requirements of their workplace or where they live. Right, I did find it was increasingly difficult to navigate certain uh, settings without because the the presumption is you have a smartphone and those are things introduced into uh, you know the life of a city or whatever where it just the, the presumption is you have a smartphone so you're going to be able to do certain things and if you don't then. Uh, things become complicated. So there's this question of agency. If I imagine that uh, there are only two poles in, in regards to, you know, one is the individual, me and, and the choices I can make, or this large s system, this large um, uh, agglomerate, you know, accumulation of, of, of technologies that are scaled so large that, that there's, there, I have very little or no agent. I see myself having no agency at all. Um, and and this doesn't even have to be the system itself, right? It's just society, right? Society tends in certain ways. So if I think, you know, those are just the two poles, I, I cannot affect, I have, I have almost no agency with regards to societal wide trends and systems and structures. And then I have my sphere of uh, the, the, the sphere of the private individual where I, I can make certain choices. But I think we need something, uh, an intermediary, uh, you know, mediating institutions. Uh, this is, I think, Robert Bela used to call them mediating institutions, right? So, places where smaller, human size, human scaled communities can become sites of moral reasoning, moral deliberation, and and practice, right? So, a local congregation to me seems uh, well suited. To be just such a community, right? So you know, one can imagine, particularly with regards to uh, how we might want our children to interact with smartphones. Wh whether we think, you know, is it appropriate for a seven-year-old to have a smartphone? Uh, adults seem to have a hard time disciplining their use of smartphones. Is it wise to give that to it to a seven-year-old for all sorts of reasons? Uh, but uh, the challenge is that if I make that choice, as a, as a you know, in, in my family. But every other child in my child's uh, peer group has a smartphone. That I'm exclude, you know, it's, it's essentially excluding them from social life. Uh, this, I think, is more pronounced maybe in, in middle school and high school. 
Um, but if there's a community, an existing community of families that have chosen similarly, right, and there's an existing community of friends that the peer group is not already sort of so dependent upon digitally mediated interactions, then that becomes a much easier, my, my agency and the kinds of um, uh, sacrifices that may entail are, uh, uh, you know, the, the sacrifices are alleviated, the agency is enhanced because I'm working within the bounds of a community. Um, and so I think, you know, churches can certainly be that kind of community where we think about technology uh, not just as individuals or as family units and don't resign ourselves to social transit and forces that we can't control, but we find a greater degree of uh, agency together to pursue. And, and where you have, I, presumably, although I, I, you know, I've been I, I know how church life is. I, I don't want to presume that there's a great deal of, uh, you know, complete unanimity as to the social goods we would want to pursue or the virtues we'd want to pursue. But at least a, a, perhaps a greater degree of um, uh, agreement about the kinds of virtues we want to pursue um, in ourselves, our families, this, this in, you know, enfleshment of the, of the community and the local congregation, et cetera. I wanted to, to turn now kind of in thinking about you know, some of these things in these contexts and hopefully like places where we can kind of discern some of those things in common with others and creating that, that space. Um, I, I think of some of the technologies that we, we don't, we aren't as aware of, you know, I, for sure, I, with my wife and we're thinking about our, our kids and okay, like they're, they're young. And so right now there is not that pressure, but we've heard certainly of that, that pressure. And are we building community, uh, in our parish or with others that are, that can help us kind of create that, that space and, and knowing too, that really good parents we know with older kids, like they're really struggling. Um, but there are other, there are other forms of technology too, that I don't even stop to think about. And you had a, a piece recently, um, I thought was, was really great kind of about the clock. Uh, and the, the role of the clock as a technology, again, we think of it so old, but this mecha the mechanical clock, the digital clock, we have access to a perfect time yeah. all the time, and especially within context of then also of light and artificial light. And how do we kind of tell time very like precisely and mechanically or like based on what's going on on the day or in the, the season? And so um, you could start just talking a little bit about your experience at dusk one evening. Yeah. And, and how that led uh, you down a, a really interesting path in your thinking. Sure, yeah. I, I mean, I think that there, there are these um, lines that are keyed into the fact that we are embodied creatures. So we have an experience of time, we have an experience of place uh, and our embodiment. These, these to me are uh, critical sites of reflection when we think about technology. So the, the experience you're referring to, so I'm, I'm walking I live in a relatively, um, you know, somewhat small city uh, in the kind of suburban area, but I, it, it also happens to be fairly wooded, uh, and so it's not hard for me to, to find myself on a, on a wooded trail uh, near where I live. And I was walking with my—I have two daughters. I was walking along with them a few months ago, uh, right around dusk, and and all of a sudden, as the quality of the light is changing, as the the sounds are kind of becoming more muted. I feel this sense of um, of, of relaxation. My, my my shoulder muscles kind of relax, and I realize, oh wow, I've been carrying a lot of tension and stress right there, and all. And, but they just kind of just relax, and I and I um, began to think about this idea that you know our 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 we are creatures made for for a world, right? Um, you know, I think this is you know a theological proposition, right? But if we if we accept that at some level, 
then there's a there's a ideally a kind of a harmony between the world for which we have been made and and we who have been made for that world um and so its patterns its rhythms um have are, are not simply arbitrary and uh, matters of indifference with regards to human flourishing right so you know i think about the advent of um uh, electric light, right? So this is a relatively recent innovation. I mean, there are, it is true, right? You know, the clock, uh, longer standing, but, but even electric light, which uh, all of us and our parents and perhaps even our grandparents had the benefit of experiencing. But beyond that, if you go much further beyond that, then you're very likely to end up with people who lived through the transition or didn't. So this is all to say um, that the electrification of our uh, experience of our of the night uh, is a huge experiment uh, being conducted at a global scale uh, on the human being, right, on the human animal, uh, and not just the human animal, right, uh, it, because it affects all sorts of other um, creatures that we share the world with, uh, you know. So, so there's a lot of research on this now um, that points to uh, you know light at night. L A N is sometimes how it's abbreviated. Light at night. Uh, interrupting our circadian rhythms, uh, causing difficulties with um, our ability to rest at night. Uh, possibly, uh, I'm not a medical professional, but some of the studies I have read seem to suggest some link even between certain kinds of cancer because of its effect on um, our internal hor hormonal system. So there are all, there are all these ways in which um, what was probably just perceived as a, a you know, wonderful boon we can light the night, right? Uh, carries with it these unintended consequences for us that lead, um, that, that are not conducive, you know, to our flourishing as the kinds of creatures that, that we are. Um, timekeeping, you know, is related to that uh, in some respects. You know, I think of that as having maybe a different set of issues uh, with it as well. Um, you know, I wrote that piece actually I, on the, the, um, the weekend where we, uh, switch to daylight savings time, uh, and I was, you know, completely unreflective about that. I didn't realize that that was what was happening. But that's another example of something that really is made possible by widespread mechanical timekeeping, right? Which um, the, the systemization of time across um, across the, the the nation, even right, something that was required when the railroad um, was uh, first being developed, and so the standardized time zones were a product of the railroad system, right? It's a, it's a social system that was required for the safety of the technical system. And so there are all these ways in which we have um, changed how we experience time, light, the seasons. Um, the question of light has other ramifications that I've noted uh, in other cases, like we don't see the starry skies, right? We don't, we don't see, um, what had been the, the inheritance of mankind uh, since time immemorial, right? The, the glory of the night sky. And again, in a theological context, I you know I might say something like, well, you know, the, the heavens don't declare the glory of God, as the psalmist says, if we can't see them. Uh, and so there are, I think, ways in which, you know, theologically, the way I would put it, these are uh, realms of natural revelation, right? Um, which sustain our wonder, sustain our sense of creaturehood. Uh, they, there are ways in which the Creator discloses uh, Himself to us, and through the you know, accretion of the, of the human-built world, we have 
disconnected ourselves from these rhythms. Uh, we have stepped out of you know these patterns, and we have sort of silenced and, and silenced the way in which we might think of God speaking to us through the the the, the, the natural world and its rhythms and its patterns. Um, so there, I think there's there's a lot going on there that we don't tend to think about uh, of moral and even spiritual significance. And that's your big argument in this piece. I'll quote here. Digital culture is defined precisely by the fact it exhibits no discernible temporal rhythm. And many of our social disorders from the deprivations of private life to the disintegration of public life and the apparent stagnation of culture stem from this fact. Yeah, that, that's a big that's a big claim. It is, right? Yeah. So <laughs> let me break that down. So I'll think of that, you know, along those three lines, right? You know, in terms of private life, right? I'm thinking of things like the, the, the practical health consequences that I mentioned earlier. And I want to reflect mm. beyond those health consequences. But I think, you know, in many ways, the only language, the only publicly available language we have to ourselves is, is the language of uh, measurable outcomes and health, health consequences, right? So fine. Um, and on that score, you know, I think there, there's now mounting evidence that it is not good for us as embodied creatures to be indifferent to um, the, the, you know, the, the needs of our, you know, circadian system, right? Um, so in terms of sleep and rest, um, the, and, and also, you know, to, to be able to work at night uh, extends that realm of, of work, right, in ways that do not allow us to rest properly to socialize properly um the 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 socialization so that's the second thing right you know part of what uh digital technology enables is the the management of individualized schedules right flexibility um and increase so i you know i i move in that piece from you know kind of pre-industrial um society where everything is sort of synced to uh the the rhythm of 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 agriculture essentially right and a lot of the rhythms of daily life the seasonal rhythms uh and then the liturgical calendar kind of layered over that these all worked in in i think in in sync to create a certain rhythms for the day for the week for the seasons for the year etc um industrialization yielded a different set of rhythms right it was maybe the the nine to five right the nine to five work day uh, was I think probably the foundational rhythm and and the weekend right the five day week, um, this was the foundational rhythm of industrial society. Now that had its own problems, but it had one advantage I think over our emerging atemporality, which is to say that the vast majority of people were on the same um, sort of schedule as it were. Right, uh, it enabled people to coordinate other. Uh, kinds of activities, whether it's dinner as a family or get-togethers as friends or you know church community, whatever. Um, a growing amount of flexibility enabled by uh, digital timekeeping and uh, and computers that can um, facilitate right the micromanaging of uh, employee schedules. Say right, I mean there are, there are various ways in which you know we can think about this. Right, the fact that in certain um, jobs you will not know. What your your schedule will change rather erratically from one week to another, um, and so there's very little ability for you to enter into any kind of rhythm in your own life. Um, and then we all, whether we have the more privileged case of this, where you know I, I have flexibility, I can work from home, 
uh, or whether it's more where I'm at the whim of the algorithm that is plotting my schedule across the next three weeks. You know, whatever, wherever we are, we, we've been socially desynchronized. Right? And now it's increasingly difficult to coordinate social activities and gatherings and get together. So there's, there's that dimension as well. Uh, and then, you know, with regards to the, that last claim about cultural stagnation, what I have in mind there is that there was something very generative about the way in which the, the human culture was sort of synced to the, the rhythms of the natural world, right? There's, there's a way in which it gave us metaphors. Uh, it structured our time, I think, at a, in a more humane way. Um, it generated, as I said, a kind of uh, synchronicity with um, with our our sort of sa the sacred dimensions of our practices, um, and it I think it fueled it fuels us in certain ways. It gave us um, I I'm not, I haven't settled on the best word for this right, but it. Um, it, in, it injected a kind of imminent source of creativity or imagination, and I pair that with the with you know the other possibilities that there's a transcendent source of uh, creativity, imagination, of inspiration, of desire. Um, and if we if we cut our you know my my thinking again, if I think of this in a theological mode, and I don't always write in a theological mode, I try to write write in a, a fairly widely accessible way, but we, if we sever our link to a tra transcendent sources, but and then also to these imminent sources in nature and the rhythms of nature, then we're sort of kind of I, I almost see it as being trapped in the human-made world, um, and then just subject to um, you know just just imitation, right? Just mimetic desire, uh, and and I think that's what yields this sense that I think many people have that we we just can't build as some people might want to put it or we can't you know be more creative our artistic expressions seem stale and rote and repetitive um and again i you know i i wonder if it is not in part because we have um so ensconced ourselves in the human built world that we've cut ourselves off from sources that might fuel um you know cultural development i don't know that so that's a little speculative but that's that's sure. kind of our thinking on that no, I appreciate your, your thinking on that. Before I let you go, I wanted to ask you about um, one of the the scholars you quote, and I love when you're writing in, in this piece. You you know we just wrote about there are some great quotations you're pulling um, about like you know enkindling a light in the darkness, but to not necessarily against the darkness. Mm -hmm. uh, and just I think you're so great at finding these old sources from yeah. you know. E decades before social media and yeah. our current digital uh, ecology, but then bring them into conversation with what we're mm -hmm. experiencing now. And one of the, the people who you've written about is a Jesuit, a uh, Jesuit scholar, uh, Walter Ong, who died about mm -hmm. 20 years ago, but had been in, in yeah. St. Louis before that. And since this is the Jesuit podcast, wanted to ask <laughs> you about Walter Ong. So um, yeah, so what, what about him uh, do you uh, find compelling uh, today? And maybe you could introduce a little bit of, of him and his, his thought to, to our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Walter Ong, um, I think it was a, a brilliant um, media ecologist. He, he was a student of Marshall McLuhan's, um, and the the his work that has been most influential uh, in my thinking is a book he wrote in the late seventies or early eighties called uh, Orality and Literacy, 
in which he traces the 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 consequences both uh, psychic, that is to say, um, you know, with regards to human psychology and consciousness, and socially uh, of the introduction of writing, of literacy into society. Uh, and again, here's one of these sort of older technologies that we don't think of as a technology, right? But it was very clearly invented. It was very clearly uh, went through various iterations, um, and uh, and it radically changed how human society was organized and how people thought about themselves and, and the kind of thinking they were able to do. Uh, and so orality and literacy is in many ways a work of synthesis, where Ong is synthesizing a lot of interesting disparate work that had been going on uh, the, the previous few decades um, in literary studies, uh, in linguistics, um, and 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 in what might now sort of g- generically fall under the label of media ecology. So it it's it created for me a pattern, a way of thinking about those kinds of transitions. So the focus for Ong was on what you know what happens when we can write, right? And there are all these things that is just these casual observations that are, are very obvious once you say them, right? But but you might not have thought about, right? You know, in, in a society without writing, you can never look something up, right? It's something as fundamental that what we now take for granted that at any given moment, you know, we can just simply, uh, you know, I was gonna say, you know, search on Google or ask our chatbot of choice, right? Um, and get an answer to whatever question we have. And and prior to that, it might've seemed very uh, archaic and primitive, but you know, maybe if I had an encyclopedia, I had a kind of similar capacity, right? If I went to a library, but prior to that, you know, your, your, your options were either A, hope that the person next to you that you can talk to has the kind of answer you're looking for, or that's it, right? You can't look up. So uh, it's consequences for memory, right? For, for our capacity to remember things over time. There's, of course, the famous uh, dialogue in the Phaedrus between uh, Plato's Phaedrus, where Socrates tells this myth about the, the Egyptian god who is visiting the pharaoh to say, oh, I've, I've invented, I have this gift of writing, but the pharaoh proves very skeptical because of what it will mean for his people's capacity to remember. And um, there, there are those consequences that we move, when we move from uh, orality, primary orality to literacy. But then Ong also writing in the late 20th century um, refers to what he calls secondary orality, right? So the era of electronic media, uh, the era of radio and television. And though what, what he does there, I think it's very insightful to help us understand what is happening in those moments, but it also gives us a pattern to think about how media, other media that he did not quite imagine, right? Uh, you know, he lived into the inter- internet era, right? but he might not have understood yet or had, could have seen yet what social media would have done, right? But but one of the things I tried to do in one essay a couple of years back was take those same insights, run social media through that pattern of analysis uh, to ask how it configures our relationships, how it introduces a new kind of immediacy uh, into our um, communication that has its own kind of consequences, um, how it affects memory, how we remember what we remember. Uh, so there, there are all sorts of ways in which that book has proved um, quite fruitful to my thinking, and I, I revisit it uh, frequently. He has um, uh, several other uh, works before and after that I, you know, I think are, are quite valuable, but that's been probably the, the one work that has been most influential to me. Yeah, and we can can link to that essay you wrote. I found again this the sense of in social media is that you kind of you write about how it kind of combines the weaknesses of 
the primary orality and literacy uh, with while losing their strength. So we have, and I think you said Ong had written about how it, before literacy, you, you, when you have to make a point, you can't do it in a kind of cool analytical way over time writing by yourself. You have to, it, yeah. it's only, it's in to someone else, your neighbor, and that could turn hot, right? You right, start right. Ar- yeah. arguing. And so like we see that certainly in social media, but, um, and then in writing, you don't have your audience the same way in front of you. So you don't know, you don't you lose all of the nonverbal cues. You uh, lose the sense of who really is your audience, who are you talking yeah. to? And you're having to kind of imagine that. And so you, Again, it kind of combines all of those things when you have this like broad, invisible audience, but it's much more immediate than um, kind of writing would have been decades, right. centuries ago. Right. So you're you're writing on Twitter, but you're not writing. Uh, you're usually writing in the heat of the moment in a similar way. Um, you know, I, I think of a, as a counterexample. There, you know, I refer to um, you know, this anecdote about uh, Harry Truman, who had this habit, the American president, this habit. When, when he got angry at somebody, maybe a journalist for the way he was covering his movie, whatever, he would, he would go across the street to a hotel, across from the White House, uh, take out pen and paper from a desk, write a, an angry letter, uh, and then f- put it back in the drawer and never send it, right? And I, I think to me that's a, a good example of how, how writing creates a kind of distance, an emotional distance, allows for greater degrees of reflection. I, I think, you know, I don't know, a great deal of uh, the assumptions we have about the modern world are built upon uh, the the infrastructure of of a world of print, a world of literacy, uh, and we are still coping maybe badly with the transition away from print into social life being mediated by more immediate and disembodied forms of uh, of communication. It reminded me of this I, I, the comedian Louis C.K. years ago um, mm-hmm. before his whole reckoning. And time away from the public, but talking mm-hmm. on one of those talk shows about like the the, the phone and like mm-hmm. sending of, of, of messages, like again those kind of hot messages that are, you know, my team against your team or kind of uh, these ad hominem things. Is that especially young people? He talks about you can send these messages and you get that little burst of yeah, like the whatever that hit is that like oh I said and something dopamine yeah good, yeah dopamine yeah like I did a good job here like this is a strong point I'm making and I can put someone down and feel better myself. But then like you don't experience then their reaction to that and then if you're like on the playground and you call someone a name as a kid and you see them feel bad then like ooh, this feels bad to make someone else feel bad and so when you have that i was reminded of that his riff on that when reading again this piece is that you can be kind of hurling these things out coming from my own group think or against another side but then i again i don't have to then see the the reaction of this a disembodied um, person receiving this on the other end yeah, I, I remember that that little skit exactly. I wrote about it at the time, and uh, hmm. I have to dredge it up. I think it was in a Medium post back, you know, for a while when I, I kind of wrote on, on Medium a little bit. Um, so that, I think it's exactly right there. So uh, Graham Greene in in the Power and the Glory um, uh, has this line that has always stuck with me. And so the his his main his protagonist, the whiskey priest, uh, finds himself enclosed um, with some other. Um, people in a kind of jail-like situation. And uh, there's there's a, an older lady, maybe I think it is, who's kind of hurling insults at him and um, abu- you know, verbally abusing him. But there's this line where he could see the lines on her face. And, and, he, and he said, the narrator, I think it says something like, when, when you can see the lines on the face, it was impossible to hate. Um, and, and that spoke to me about the, the, the power of the body to elicit um, pity, empathy, 
right? That kind of exactly what you're describing that you, you see immediately your body perceives, even if your intellect is not, uh, you know, willing to accept the, the harm your words might do. And so when you take communication out of the realm of, of the body, of, of, of presence, of embodied presence, um, embodied presence is no guarantee that people will behave virtuously and, and well, right? Of course, we know that. Um, but in certain situations, I think to remove the body also removes certain safe, not safeguards, right? But guardrails that might have kept some people at some times from um, treating others as if they were just objects, right? As if they were not uh, feeling human beings with their own dignity, et cetera. Well, Michael Sacasas, I really appreciate uh, this time. And I find myself like I'm going to start. I feel like I can't not now think kind of more deeply about some of these things that I just kind of do mindlessly uh, or these systems that I, I don't even notice that I'm in the middle of you know, like a fish swimming in water. Uh, but I really appreciate the way you kind of call us out of that and to, to reflect uh, and to kind of also, again, putting into dialogue uh, these these great thinkers of the past with our, our current moment. And I just think really uh, wonderful, important work. And again, we'll be excited to be able to hopefully send some folks uh, your way to your um, to your uh, to your newsletter. Um, so, yeah, thank you again for, for the time and all your work. And we'll be interested to see uh, kind of where you go next. Yeah, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Always, always glad to chat. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leepsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>